This is the reading of God's holy word. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread. And assemble all the congregation at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on him and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breastpiece on him, and in the breastpiece he put the Urim and the, thur- and the th- Thummim. And he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front, he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Let's skip over to Hebrews 7 now, and we'll read verses 11 to 25. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek, rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one of whom these things are spoken belonged to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, and in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness, for the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, A better hope is introduced through which we draw near to God. And it was not without an oath. For those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made, but this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, The Lord has sworn. And will not change his mind. You are a priest forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. This is the reading of God's holy word. Thanks be to God.
In the past couple uh, times that we've taken our children to our parents' house, um, we've been asking mom, as we see, or our children's grandmother, as they're preparing the meal, how do you make that? And sometimes our mother or mother-in-law says, don't worry about it, I'll make it for you. And out of curiosity, we say, no, we want to learn. We want to learn. And as we watch and as they explain it, we realized oftentimes the most amazing dishes, although simple, uh, take so much work and preparation and mincing and planning. And that is very similar to what we have today. If the section in Hebrews shows us what the finished dish is like, then in Leviticus, we find much of the raw ingredients so that we may appreciate and truly taste and see who Jesus is as the great high priest and mediator. But before we get there, I want us to recap for a moment and think about the dramatic journey of the Israelites and the hidden beauties that we are about to see in Leviticus. In Genesis and about halfway through Exodus, we witness a lot of amazing and dramatic things in the lives of the Israelites. From creation to fall, from Noah's Ark, a covenant with Abraham and his sons, Isaac and Jacob, Joseph, who was sold off as a slave by his brothers, and then seeing this small group of people in Egypt multiplying and growing in numbers. Not only that, as we enter into Exodus, then we see that as this people grew, they were oppressed. And as they cried out to God, God heard them, and He answered, and He came to rescue them. We can recall in the narrative of Exodus how God sent the plagues. How the wrath of God over the Passover preserved His people but received vengeance for His enemies. Remember how the Israelites were sent out through the Exodus, freed from the oppression as they crossed the Red Sea and found themselves at Mount Sinai where they saw the glory cloud, the Shekinah glory of God, as Moses received the Ten Commandments. And with these amazing, dramatic narratives of the people of God, we find ourselves here with very detailed, intricate, nuanced, arduous set of instructions on how to construct a tent and how to operate within this tent. It's almost, dare we even say, anticlimactic. Perhaps even for us, this congregation, having gone through a series in 1 Timothy, having just confirmed the training of six new men for the office, three to elder and deacon, having just gone through a series on evangelism, perhaps we're wondering, Why are we camping out here in Exodus? Why are we preaching through what was referred to as last week, the Bible reading plan stopper? It seems anticlimactic. It seems a bit inappropriate. However, the story of Leviticus makes more sense when we understand not just what is written in ink, but what the blood between the lines are pointing to. 
Well, Leviticus may lack to communicate in ink, it cries out in blood. If the tabernacle, which we talked about last week, is the place in which God comes to dwell among His people, then the priestly mediators are the ones who allow the people to be in God's presence. You see, Leviticus is not a dip after the climax of the Ten Commandments or Mount Sinai. It's not a growing crescendo and now we're on the down. Leviticus, as we see in the first five books of the Bible, is at the crown jewel, centerpiece. And it's actually through all the detailed instructions screaming out to us that this is what we've been waiting for. That this is how God and His people will dwell and be together. You see, veiled behind the carefully measured lines of the tabernacle and the fine detailings of the curtains is the very Gospel message of Jesus Christ. Hidden for the people of God so that we may see through the eyes of faith once more that even in a place like Leviticus, the Gospel is so clear. And so the Gospel message this morning is simple. That Jesus Christ is the mediator between you and God. That Jesus Christ is the mediator between us and God. So we'll look at three points. The need for a priest. The Levitical priest. And the great high priest. First point, the need for a priest. As we look in verse 1-2 through in Levitical... Leviticus 8, we see that Aaron and his sons are set aside to be ordained as priests. As it goes forth, Moses is instructed to gather the whole congregation and be assembled at the entrance of this tent of meeting to witness basically an ordination service that will take seven days. For those of you guys who've been to any ordination service here at church or even mine I know it seems so long and boring and hot and it lasts for two hours. But friends, consider yourself blessed. In Leviticus, we find an ordination service that takes seven days with much detail and careful attention to specifics. If we can click, we see here, after the tabernacle was constructed, now begins the priestly order by which the people of God may interact and be in His presence. Think about the Israelites having received the Ten Commandments from that mountain, having seen God's glory, now given all these instructions to build this tabernacle, and having finally done so, then given more instructions on how to ordain men who will mediate for them. Again, if the tabernacle is where God dwells with His people, the priestly mediators are how God dwells with His people. But in order to understand our need for a mediator, we have to understand and acknowledge a simple reality that God is holy and we are sinful. That God is holy And people are sinful. We have to see God as He truly is, and we have to see ourselves as we truly are, just as the Israelites had to see. If we're going to appreciate why we need a mediator, 
We have to be able to come in humble remembrance of who God is. If we can click in Exodus 20, follow along, we see an account right after Moses brought the Ten Commandments. This is what we're told. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us, and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of Him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. And we're reminded here that when the people of God saw the glory and the weight and the thunders and the lightning and the presence of God, that they trembled and they were afraid. Because at that moment, they realized how small they were And how great God was. In that moment, they realized and they saw and experienced through sweaty palms and shaking knees a holy God and a sinful creature. Later on in Exodus 33, we see this encounter as Moses is meeting with God on that mountain. This is what Moses says. He says, God, I want to see your face. He says, God, show me your glory. And God says, you cannot see my face or you will die, but I will do this for you. He says, I will take you and I will stand you on the mountain. I will hide you in a cliff. And as I pass by, I will cover over you. And just as I am passing by, I will let you see the backside of my glory and who I am. And even Moses, the man who was brave enough, the man who was called to mediate for God, could not see God directly, could not behold His glory, had to be protected and veiled from God's holiness. At least he would die himself. God is holy. Brothers and sisters, do we... Can we remember that this morning as we hear God's Word that God is holy. He is other. He is separate. There is a a, a weight of His glory that separates and makes Him distinct from anything created. From anything that we look to. The Bible tells us in other places, click and first... Samuel 2, there is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. 1 Timothy 6, God dwells in unapproachable light. Revelations 4.8, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty who was and is and is to come. All things on earth 
all things in heaven declare and testify to God's holiness. He is holy. He is separate. He dwells in unapproachable light. And we are sinful. In light of His glory, we see and recognize our frailty. If you click again, the Scripture always reminds us the brokenness of man, Ecclesiastes 7. Surely there is none, there is not a righteous man on earth who does good and never sins. Romans 3, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Romans 3, for all have sinned and fall short the glory of God. See, when we acknowledge God as He truly is, then we see ourselves as we truly are. If we see God's holiness, then we recognize our sinfulness. We see this through the arduous, telling, and written Word of God in Leviticus. It's easy to get lost in the instructions and the details, but through this, it's trying to show us that God is holy. We are sinful, and it takes very specific and detailed instructions from a holy God for us to approach Him and be with Him. It's not so easy. It's not so willy-nilly, but God is holy, and we are sinful. R.C. Sproul puts it in this way, when we understand the character of God, when we, grasp, when we grasp something of His holiness, then we begin to understand the radical character of our sin and hopelessness. He continues, he says, the clearest sensation that a human being has when he experiences the holy is an overpowering and overwhelming sense of creatureliness. That is, when we are in the presence of God, we are humbled and become most aware of ourselves as creatures. This is the opposite of Satan's original temptation. You shall be as gods. If we remember as Satan, through the serpent, tempted Adam and Eve, he says, you shall be like God if you eat this. And where Satan says, you shall be like God, Jesus says, you shall be with God. But in order to be with God, we need someone to cleanse us of our sins and call us into His glorious presence. Brothers and sisters, I wonder this morning if we recognize afresh our sinfulness, our frailty, our brokenness, how our hearts are indeed prone to wander and forget who God is. How we so easily come to God with our bickering and brokenness and complaint. Addressing Him as Father, yet at the same time forgetting that He is also at the same time our holy, heavenly Father who is set aside and like no one else. We need a mediator. Because of our sin, because of His his holiness, we need someone to mediate our relationship. And the Israelites, if we look in our text, the Lord provided for them Levitical priests 
priests to mediate, as they fully recognize their inability to come and freely access God, we see that a priestly order is established through Aaron and his sons. The people of God will be with their God. The people of God will have someone to mediate for them. And so we see a seven-day ordination process. And in detail, we're reminded once more exactly what the priest wore and what he represented. So click again. A picture says a thousand words, but I'll explain a little bit of what you're looking at here. This is what Aaron as high priest wore. This is what he wore as he went into mediate for God's people. Here we see a turban of fine linen that held a plate of pure shining gold with engraving that says, holy to Yahweh, holy to God, the one true God, holy and set apart. In the ephod, we see a colorful linen with two stones on the shoulder made of onyx and each having the twelve sons of Israel put on it. On the breast piece, we see four rows of three with precious stones, and on each stone is written each tribe of Israel. And in the robe, we see beautiful colors of royalty in blue attached to it golden bells. Why was the high priest decked out like this? And why doesn't the church provide me with that outfit? <laughs> Let me tell you why. Well, I'll address the first one. The second one, that's, that was a silly joke. The high priest wears this. We're told in Leviticus 8, 5-10 that Aaron and his sons, they were washed, dressed, and consecrated. They were washed, they were cleansed, and then they were dressed, particularly Aaron as high priest, in this way. We see that the turban and the pure gold representing this person who is set aside as a mediator for God's people, holy to Yahweh. We see an ephod colorfully, beautifully woven and made as he represents not only God and the splendor of his glory, but also the people of God with each name being written and carried on his chest. And we see this high priest represents both the holiness of God and the people of God who desperately need mediating. This individual, this high priest did not simply represent himself. When he put this garment on, he didn't think to himself, what shoes can I wear with this? How can I express my individual sense of fashion? These garments tethered him identified him, placed the weight of glory and sin upon him as a mediator, representing God's beauty and glory, yet at the same time, the frailty of his people who needed much intercession. And the priest would go in, representing both God and man, to make sacrifices, to burn offerings, to help atone for the sins of his people, satisfy the justice of God and to mediate God and man. And we see this in the Old Testament not just a few times, not just a handful of times, but as much as the people sinned, 
Blood was shed to pay the cost. You know, if we're honest, we would be squeamish and repulsed at the sight of what it took to make sacrifices for our sins. Today, maybe we we have lost the important parallels of what the sacrifices meant. Perhaps, Perhaps we today having never seen that type of ordinance being done, forget that our sins are in reality grotesque, squeamish, and repulsive. Perhaps today we have forgotten our need for a mediator, our need for a sacrifice on our behalf. But friends, we are reminded through the book of Leviticus that sinful people can only come to God as innocent blood was shed. Yes, the animals were innocent. They did nothing wrong. In fact, it was only the spotless and the perfect without blemish. It was those animals that were brought and slaughtered for the sins of God's people. But it was either the blood of God's people or the blood of these sacrifices. The price of sin had to be paid to enter into the presence of a holy and beautiful and glorious God. And this is what the mediators at that time, this is what the Levitical priests carried out. But we see limitations, don't we? We see that the priests have to also make sacrifices for their own sins. We see that the priests although beautifully adorned and consecrated and set aside, although the priest through the lineage of Aaron carries on these duties, eventually died off and failed to continue the work that is necessary of the mediator. And so, as redemptive history would tell us, the people of God had to look forward to a greater high priest. So we are at our last point Not only is there a need for a mediator, not only is there a need for a better mediator, but there is a need for us to focus and reflect on then how Christ fulfills this role forever. In Hebrews 7, 1 through 3, look with me. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him, Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. Further along in verse 11 in Hebrews, it affirms that the Levitical priest could not keep going. A different order of priesthood needed to be established. It reminds us that if the Levitical priests were enough, then we would have no need for a greater high priest to mediate to come. And this greater high priest, which we've already revealed as Jesus, we see through the example of this man, Melchizedek. Yes, it's a funny name, and yes, he's mentioned only a few times in Scripture, but upon his utterance, 
we see so many parallels of Christ as great high priest. So who is Melchizedek? Again, we're told Melchizedek's name means king of righteousness, king of peace. He is a king and a priest. He occupies both offices. He is without father or mother or genealogy. He has no beginning of days or no end of days. He, in fact, is a priest forever. And as the account of Melchizedek and Abraham is mentioned in Genesis, we're told that Melchizedek gives Abraham bread and wine. And Abraham gives to Melchizedek a tenth, a tithe of all that he has. And we see these beautiful glimpses, even in Genesis, of a priestly king blessing a nation through Abraham. We see here, unlike the Levitical priests who only represented and mediated for the Israelites, a new priestly order coming through the line of Melchizedek, representing not just one race of people, but all God's people. Not just representing them for a small period of time in history, but for all time. We see a priest who doesn't have to make sacrifices on behalf of his people, but in fact offers himself as the very sacrifice, perfect and without spot or blemish for his people. We see a great high priest in Jesus, one who not only represents the splendor and beauty and glory of God, but as he takes on flesh, represents man being tempted as we are in every way yet without sin. In Christ we see the King of righteousness, a King of peace, a mediator who has no end of days, a mediator who continues to intercede for you and I. See, in Hebrews 7, look with me, it's turning 23 to 25, the former priests were many in number, because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. And consequently, he's able to save the uttermost those who draw to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And in John 1, 14, we're reminded as the word became flesh, he was 100% man he dwelt among us, and yet at the same time we have seen His glory as 100% God. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You see, in all the ways that the Levitical priests tried their best to represent God's glory and His people, Christ does it perfectly. In all the ways that that role tried to carry on through the frailty of men, Christ puts an end to that and says, I will hold this office, this position forever. What does this mean? Brothers and sisters, this means that if you have Jesus as your mediator, you need nothing else to come to God. You don't need any good works. You don't need anything on your resume. You don't need anything except God. You, you don't need a pastor. You don't need elders or deacons. You, you, don't, you don't need uh, uh, all these structured things. Simply, if you want to come to God, you have Jesus as the mediator. 
As beautiful and wonderful as the church is, do not let that replace Jesus. If you've been coming here to church, yet you find yourself this morning without the mediator, Christ Himself, then you need Him. It's not about just coming to church. It's not about just interacting with people here and and talking about pleasant things and being encouraged. It's about coming to the mediator who gives you a dwelling place with God. Do you have Jesus today? Let me end with this brief illustration and story, one of our members brought their friends to worship with us a few months ago. And when I spoke with this visitor, I said, hey, curious as a pastor, and hey, how was, how was worship for you today? And he said an odd thing at the time. He said, I really liked it. It was so accessible. And I was like, boy, that's a that's an odd thing to say. I don't really hear that too much. Either they say the praise was good, the praise was bad, the sermon was good, the sermon was bad, it was too long, it was too short, it was too hot, or it was too cold. But this person said, I loved it. The worship was so accessible. It was accessible. And he told me that he, his background was that of uh, Catholicism. He went to the Catholic Church and you know, I, I believe in their worship and, and, and the way they have much of their liturgy. There are so many things going on. And it feels sometimes, ironically, inaccessible. That, that, that God and Christ and all the things that are promised in Scripture seem so far and transient. And yet he said here, as we worship, as he worshiped with us, he felt that the worship of God was accessible. Praise be to God. That's because we take the mediator Christ seriously. It's because we truly see him as the one who can mediate for us. No pastor can fill that role. No elder or deacon can fill that role. No leader, no servant. Only Christ can fit the role of mediator. Friends, do you have Jesus as your mediator right now, sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for you? I'm not talking about yesterday. I'm not talking about tomorrow. I'm talking about right now, today, as you hear God's Word, are you confident that Christ, the great high priest, who has blasted through the heavens and now sits at the right hand of God making intercession for us who are in Him all the days so that we can come and find mercy and help in time of need. Do you have Him today? And if you don't, May I encourage you, challenge you, and urge you to turn to Christ. Let's reflect and come together in prayer.